When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. It was kind of uh, nice to take last week off. I feel like recharged, even though we were in Los Angeles filming videos and collaborations. It was kind of nice to just have a little break and be able to see old friends and everything like that. And I hope you had a wonderful week as well. Now, I know for you, it didn't feel like we had a week off, but I didn't ask for your questions last week because we were out of town. But without further ado, today we have eight questions. They run the gamut from therapy, complex PTSD and emotional abuse, all sorts of things. So let's jump into question number one. Question number one says, Katie, why do I so badly want people to understand what I'm really feeling on the inside. To the outside world, I appear confident, successful, and organized. But on the inside, I actually have super low self-esteem, have severe anxiety, and I feel like I'm hanging on by a thread. I find it almost hurtful when someone says, I wish I was as organized as you are, or anything like that. I assume it's because it minimizes some of the struggles that I have behind the scenes, and I want validation, could be that, or maybe it bothers me that people don't seem to know the real me. I feel like I'm being put on a pedestal, which is problematic as it leads to feeling like I have to meet the high standards that people have for me. Is it worth correcting people if they say something about me that I don't think is accurate, or should I let it go? I understand that lots of other people struggle on the inside, invisibly, and that it's not unique to me, lol. Thanks so much for all you do. You have no idea how helpful this podcast has been for us. Of course, I'm so glad it's been helpful. Now, we have a bunch of questions on top of this, but let's talk about this overall sentiment first. The fact that we want people to know how we really feel, yet we don't express it outwardly. And the truth about this is it could come from a lot of different places. Number one, like the person who asked this question, maybe hypothesized, is that we want the validation. 100%. I've talked about this all the time that needing attention or wanting people to understand us, like to feel heard and understood, those are all human needs. Those don't make us bad or weird or something wrong with us because we need that. But that could be where this is coming from. Because we feel when people like honestly are giving us a compliment, it is hurtful because we feel like it negates what's actually going on. Then it can make us feel like it what's happening is not really real, or maybe how we're feeling isn't really real, or maybe, you know, we can second guess ourselves. It can make the shame, blame, embarrassment, guilt, all that stuff way worse. So yes, that could be part of it. I guess the question isn't so much as to why you want people to understand, but more so why you don't want people to to see it or know about it. Because we're like putting on this front. This is incredibly common, right? We like white knuckle our way through life, like just gripping let me get through it. And then we're frustrated when people don't know how badly we feel. Now, I'm not advocating for us to fall apart, cry at work, you know, do all the things that probably aren't good for us long term. Um, 
or even in our relationships or our success as a person. Like, I don't want you doing any of those things that could be bad for you, but there's nothing wrong with letting some people in. Now, okay, it could come from validation. I realize I never got into the other reasons, but I just wanted to say that too. That there's there's probably a huge component of why it's so important for us to appear like we have it all together. Maybe growing up, it wasn't okay to fall apart or it wasn't okay to need things. That's why I wonder if this this need for validation is so strong is because maybe when we were growing up, we were emotionally neglected or abused if they heard anything you know, quote unquote, bad from us, meaning if we weren't just happy and easygoing, it, we were hurt for that. We were blamed, shamed, you know, yelled at and abused. I don't know. And so just paying attention to that, or maybe just taking the time to consider where it could be coming from for you could be incredibly helpful. So think about that because yes, the validation could be a component, but there's also stuff from childhood that could be playing out here too. And unless we give ourselves an opportunity to think about it, consider see what applies to us, maybe not, we won't know. Um, so I think, I mean, those are the two, like just the validation itself or potentially because we didn't get validation as a child, it's that much more important now as we, as an adult. But I would be curious about why you don't want people to see the real you. And I guess my question to you is, do you ever let anybody see that? Maybe other than a therapist. That would be interesting to talk about, think about and consider the why behind it, right? Now, is it worth correcting people? I don't believe so, unless we want those people to know. Like, we have to consider, and this isn't to say we should pretend we're okay or that it's not okay to have mental health struggles because everybody has them, but I don't want you to let people in on information that they could later use to hurt you if we don't really know that person that well. I've talked about this on, probably on the channel, but I know definitely on like panels and speaking engagements, people talk about sharing online. And I always say, don't give someone the bullets to kill you. Like, don't give someone information that you don't want out there because once we put it out there, we can't take it back, whether that's online, whether that's in person or whatever. And so if we're going to correct people and be like, actually, I'm not organized at all. I'm like barely hanging on. Are we okay with them knowing that? And if that person is not a close friend, are we okay knowing that they'll probably share that with other people and people can talk? I'm not saying that people are going to gossip, but let's say they did. Are we okay with that? So think it through. And if the answer by and large is, yeah, I wish somebody knew what was going on. I wish they could, I could tell them like how I really feel. Then you can share. There's nothing wrong with telling, like correcting people or sharing what's really going on. But just know that, you know, we don't have to. And it might not be our in our best interest to do that. And so letting it go where where we think it's necessary and correcting them where we want to. It's kind of up to you. Um, okay. Now there was a comment that said, I completely understand this. I feel myself liking when I'm physically sick as it makes me feel like how other people see me on the outside almost matches how I feel on the inside. I hear that statement over and over and over and over and over again with my patients who struggle with self-injury, that somehow the, the the actual injuring of ourselves is like representative outwardly of how we're feeling inwardly. And it's it can be part of what drives the self-injury urges. So it's incredibly common. It says, people seem to care and comfort me and trying to make me feel better when I'm physically sick. Is there a reason that what some people would say as uh, scary, such as things like surgery or chronic illness, seem comforting in my mind. I don't know if this makes sense, but I'm not sure how to explain it well. You explained it great. The truth is, I think this comes from the fact that you were probably neglected as a child in some way. 
meaning that we never really got the attention or the emotional support that we needed. Remember, attention's a need. It's not a selfish act that like only certain people need. It's something that all humans need. So that need was never met. We've gone out into adulthood trying to find other ways to get that need met. And one of those ways is by getting comfort and attention and care from other people. Makes sense, right? And so being physically sick increases that and it feels so good because it's something that we've been wanting and needing for our whole lives and have never had. So I would encourage you, I mean, the truth on how to kind of undo this or get ourselves out of this pattern is to do that inner child work. Now I have an inner child workshop available on my website and just go to katiemorton.com and pick it up or talk to your therapist. Tell them that, you know, you're struggling with this and you think inner child work could be a place for you to start that healing. Let them guide you. It could be through letter writing with your dominant hand and non-dominant hand from like older you to younger you. Like, just to get those conversations going so we can get back in touch with a younger version of us. It might be different. That might mean that we are doing more trauma work or just more talk therapy or maybe doing playful things like finally getting to go to Disneyland or play on a slip and slide in the yard or throw snowballs or something that maybe as a kid we weren't allowed to do or we didn't have an opportunity to do that we've always wanted to. That can be really healing too. There's a lot of ways we can go about that inner child work, but I feel like that's where it's coming from for you. And that's why being physically sick or having a chronic illness seems so good to you, feels so good because it's a need that you've always had that has never been met. Okay, now someone else says, yes, I feel the same way. People tell me I seem so calm and confident, but I am not. For example, last week I had to hold a presentation at work where I had to present my data. I was so nervous that I could hardly eat for three days before, but my feedback was that I sounded bored. I heard that several times already, and I don't know how it's not visible that I'm basically having a heart attack on the inside, and I feel like I'm choking because my throat is so tight. I mean, it's probably good that I'm not falling apart in front of everyone, but I feel like I f a fake all the time. Is it possible to match my inside and my outside somehow? Yes, um, a couple of things. Now, the amount of anxiety or overwhelm or dysregulation that's happening because you had a presentation at work isn't, it, it's an overreaction. So something's happening in our nervous system, whether that's because we have social phobia, whether that's because we struggle with self-confidence, whether that's due to abuse or whatever, like there could be a zillion reasons why this could be happening. We're going to want to figure that out in therapy and find ways to calm our system down, whether that's like through full body shakes, whether that's through self-talk, whether that's through journaling or all of the above. We're going to have to find ways to keep ourselves cool, calm, and collected because I believe what's happening is your throat is tightening as kind of like a a, a bodily response, like a a neurological response to your stress. Throat is tightening and we might even be dissociated. I don't know if you remember giving presentations, but that could be happening. But either way, this intense internal battle leaves us on the outside like seeming very bored and not engaged because we can't be our authentic self or barely hanging on. So we're going to have to figure out some ways to manage that. And if this happens only in social situations or presentations, let your therapist know that if it's a crossed all different parts of our life, let your therapist know that. But either way, you know, we're going to want to find a better way to manage it and how to deal so that we don't sound so bored. Um, and it doesn't seem, you know, don't feel like we're choking when we're giving a presentation. We want to figure out where this is coming from so we can heal from it, you know? 
Um, and that will in turn allow you to not feel fake all the time. I'm not saying you should fall apart in front of everybody. You can fall apart in front of people who are safe, but overall we want to be able to manage this so that we're not wanting to fall apart. Do you know what I mean? And so to figure out the why or the root and work on that. Okay. Last portion of this, um, of the comment says, I find this all the time. Although I've been diagnosed with quiet BPD, I find even if I try to explain myself to get try and get validation, quite often people misinterpret what I'm trying to say, which leads to more invalidation. Recently, I've been congratulated for getting myself through some really hard times and not landing up landing in the hospital or having to call the crisis team. Thing is, I don't reach out easily, and it's something I've been working on for a while now. I also use unhealthy coping mechanisms to get me through. I'm also working on changing this, yet it gets overlooked because I'm doing it on my own. I've always needed to deal with the big things on my own, so I find this incredibly invalidating. Why would it be validating for someone else to get that feedback, feedbacks, yet so invalidating for myself? Again, probably because of childhood neglect. You've always had to get yourself through the big things. No one was ever there to help you. So it wasn't that you are so strong. It's like you had no choice. You had to just suck it up, buttercup, and do it. And so... I really think that that's why why this is so difficult, why this is so triggering and upsetting and invalidating is because potentially your whole life you've been forced to do it on your own. No one was there to support. And that could also explain like the quiet BPD too, because uh, BPD is often born out of trauma. Not all the time, but I find the majority of the times. Um yeah. And also, I think sometimes when people congratulate us for like, you know, sticking it through and not having to get, go into treatment or get help, that just feels invalidating even as I say it. Because why would you congratulate someone for not getting support? You, I mean, I guess you could say like, you're so strong, but we need to change the way we talk about this. We should be telling people congratulations for reaching out and not, you know, making yourself tough it up and do it on your own. We all know it's easier with support than it is to do it on our own. And I'm not saying going into a hospital is like the, the best choice because that can sometimes be traumatizing in and of itself. But overall, we should be, you know, congratulating people for reaching out and speaking up versus the opposite, because I feel like that is just not something. Not that I don't congratulate people for being able to deal with life, but we should also support the decisions to get help when we need it. Do you see what I'm saying? I hope you see what I'm saying. I'm not trying to be rude or hurtful, just that we need to make sure that we're giving accolades for the people speaking up and reaching out to. Um, okay. I hope that that helps. And the reason it could be validating to answer this last question, um, it could be validating for someone else because they didn't have that neglect as a child or that abuse as a child or maybe the same experiences you've had. And if someone told me, you know, congrats, Katie, I'm really sticking it out. I'd be like, thanks. Like someone's like acknowledging the struggle. We could see it as that. But if, again, if we never received that attention, that support, feeling like someone really heard us, really cared for us, and really showed up for us, then someone saying that just feels like adding salt to the wound because we're like, no one's ever here for us. What other choice did I have? Versus on the flip side, someone would be like, thanks, you're acknowledging the struggle. Do you see? So it just depends on our background and where we came from and what experiences we have. Now let's move on to question number two. And that question says, hey, Katie. My current therapist means a lot to me, and we've been working together for more than a year. Our last session is coming up, and we're leading on okay terms. I'm wondering what I can do to show her how I feel. Is it too corny to write a letter or card? 
Is there something else? Also, is it okay to ask for a hug before I leave? Thanks for all you do. Okay. Cards and letters are completely acceptable, as well as like what we call like low monetary items, like things that didn't cost any money. I've had patients bring me baked goods before, cards and letters. Um, One patient left me a candle. I've had a patient leave me like a little figurine. One patient left her like silly putty. Um, I had another leave her thinking putty, same type thing. So I've had patients leave things, give things to me, just small things. The real rule is we shouldn't take gifts from patients that are like expensive or valuable in any way. It's more about just like a thoughtful gift. So yes, a card and letter. It's not corny. We get them all the time. I think it's it's a great way to express how we feel and how grateful we've been for the relationship. And then asking for a hug, you can always ask. I mean, I personally am fine with it. I just don't want you to be disappointed if your therapist's like, oh, I don't do that. Because some therapists don't allow for it. I personally have not known any that I've worked with that don't offer hugs, but I do know some of you have told me that you've asked and your therapist said, oh, I don't do that, you know? Um, so you might want to check with them, say like, do you ever allow hugs? I was considering, you know, whether I we could have one on our last session, like just asking it that way so that you don't feel so vulnerable or potentially are hurt if they say no, because we really don't know. Every therapist has their own kind of rules and ethics that they put behind stuff like that. Some people don't think it's appropriate. I don't have a problem with it. I think sometimes a hug can be incredibly helpful in healing. I've, if patients ask for them, I've offered them, you know, multiple times, not just last sessions and stuff like that. So that might just be my take. But, um, but yeah, that that's very common. Cards and letters, very accepted. Or anything of like small monetary value. Like you can't, I mean, I had a patient once offer, they had like this business where they could fix things up in your home and in your cars and it was like audio stuff. And they're like, oh, I could do this for you. And I was like, no, but you know, you can't, we don't do trade like that. It doesn't work that way. So anyway, I think that's all great. Now there was a comment that said, how can I feel okay about ending therapy? I'm pretty attached to my therapist and we've been working together for a year and a half. It's probably ending soon enough. I can't imagine her not being in my life. She's been such a big support to me. I guess I mean, I have a video about how to end therapy. It's an oldie but a goodie. You can um, just look up how to end therapy, Katie Morton on YouTube, it'll pop up. Um, But the truth about it is that in order to get us to a place where we feel good about it and are okay with the transition of therapy stopping is to feel like it's I mean, it's a process because for me, I don't like to end therapy with patients until I feel like essentially they don't need me anymore. And obviously if with, with attachment-based stuff, if I feel like they're leaning on me too much and aren't okay to do things on their own, I might slowly spread out the sessions and check in on how they're doing and we'll, we'll acknowledge that attachment piece. Um, but to feel okay with ending therapy, I think, I mean, it's internal work for you. I would just let your therapist know you're going through this. I would let them know that you're kind of concerned about it um it can help to address and acknowledge all the work you've done together and all of the work you've done on your own because i find sometimes my patients who are attached to me feel like it's only because of me that they've made those choices and changes and a huge part of what i talk to them about is like helping them acknowledge no i gave you the homework but you're the one that did it that's the hard part it's easy for me to say dude xyz it's harder to do it right to actually take the action we all know that but sometimes we forget how hard we've worked, how far we've come, and how well we're doing. Um, and if your therapy is going to be ending soon, 
Can you go back when you need to? I mean, most therapists would say, yes, you can. And not imagining, uh, or you can't imagine not having her in your life. Maybe consider what it would look like to not and what is so triggering or upsetting about that. Like, let yourself talk it out with her and figure out where it's coming from. Is this abandonment? Is this, um, you know, feeling like we can't go on without her because that's how we've gotten better? Be curious, not judgmental about your process, because in those answers to the questions I've asked, there'll be space for healing. And overall, that that's really my, I know it's a shitty answer, but I find when we are okay with therapy ending, it can come from a lot of different places, right? It can come from attachment or abandonment fears. It can come from us not being well enough to not have therapy, which is no judgment. It's just saying, hey, we just need more of this thing that we're already doing, okay? Um, but it could also come from, you know, childhood neglect and feeling like, well, we've never had anybody listen to us. This is the only person that does. Obviously, that can also be like attachment abandonment. But just what you know, it can come from a lot of different places and figuring out where it's coming from for you is going to help you know what steps to take with your therapist before ending. And if we don't take that time to be curious, it can feel out of control and it can be really triggering and it can send us into a relapse or cause our mental health to get worse. And so it's really important that we talk about it with our therapist like as soon as possible. Okay. There was another comment on this says, I think this ties in well because it's about leaving therapy or trying to, but I can't bring myself to leave. I need to quit seeing my therapist because it's really not feasible. We get along great and she is amazing, but I was recently laid off from work so I can no longer afford it. I've also spiraled into a pretty bad depression. So I told her last session was our last session and I canceled all my future appointments. It was a bit impulsive, but I don't really see another option. I was super emotional. I couldn't keep it together. I felt like I'd never see her again, regardless of the fact that she told me so many times that I can always come back. We ended the last session okay. I mean, I was very upset. She knows I struggle with suicidal ideation and suicidal thoughts, so she asked me to confirm I was okay and everything. I feel really guilty for the way the session ended because our time was up, but I was still super upset. So it was kind of an awkward goodbye. I followed up the last session with a final email explaining what I was thinking during that session and that everything is fine. I also thanked her for everything. It was, it was a terribly long two days before I emailed requesting her next available appointment. I'm quite literally choosing therapy over food at the moment. I feel like I need her help to get past this. I know I will get another job eventually, but the thought of quitting therapy is too much for me to handle right now. What do I do? How do I deal with this level of attachment to my therapist? For context, I've been seeing her for two years, and I don't officially have a diagnosis because we both agreed it's not that important. But in sessions, we work on my severe depressive episodes, generalized anxiety, BPD tendencies, and complex PTSD issues. Okay. Ask her if she works on a sliding scale or if she'll float you some sessions for now. You lost your job. That's out of your control. I don't, I'm not laughing at you. I'm, la I'm like... A big thing happened to you. I want you to feel acknowledged. A shitty thing happened. You lost your fucking job and it ma it's making it hard for you to be in therapy, which is what you need right now. You're not ready to stop therapy. Um, it was pretty impulsive. It could behoove you to ask her, does she work on a sliding scale or will she, you know, do it for a short period? I mean, I've seen patients for half cost or free for, you know, like a month or a little a short period of time, two, three months, just depending, giving them time to get back on their feet. Because people lose jobs, um, I have students who, you know, get out of school 
and their parents aren't helping them anymore, and then they're trying. You know, there's always these transitions in life or these adjustments. And I want you to know that that's okay. And it's okay to ask if she'll work with you. Um, I've even had patients say like, hey, can I just carry a balance with you for a little bit and I'll pay it when I get a job? And, you know, we set up a payment plan. There's a ton of ways we can do this. Ask her about it. I don't want you to feel like you have to choose from between food and therapy. Yes, therapists, I mean, we have to pay our bills. And it can be expensive to be a therapist. And I'm going to be honest, we don't make a ton of money. I know I've gotten flack in the past. People are like, you make like $100 an hour or $70 an hour or $200 an hour. When you're able to charge a lot for a session, that means you live in a city, which means your rent is astronomical. Not to mention that the more patients you see, the more expensive your real practice is, and then billing costs you, everything costs. Um, so yeah, you don't really make that each hour, not to mention taxes. Like this is just people paying, you know, money and you'd have to consider all the things you have to pay into from the government. So all that being said, we do, I mean, because we got into being therapists, hopefully, I'd assume most people did, to help people. And we hold slots in our schedule for people who can't afford it. Or at least I always did. I had at least one, if not two people who were paying very little, um, you know, whatever we could, they could afford and what I could make feasible. We'd work to do it. I even had patients I saw for years and never raised their rates because I knew that they couldn't afford that. Um, and usually therapists raise their rates like every year or two. So all that being said, ask her and see what she can do to accommodate you. All of us have the right to do that. I don't want anybody to feel like you have to choose between food or therapy. And our system's so messed up. Like, why is medical covered so much better than mental health? I'm like, yeah, you have mental health coverage, like my insurance. I'm like, you have mental health coverage. Guess what your copay is? $70. I'm like, what? So you're paying 20, 30? Like, what? what? Huh? So anyway, that's what I would do. Talk to her, see how you can manage it. Um, or if you can get, you know, like a care credit account we have in the States, like zero percent interest for a year or two, see if you can do that and use that for your therapy or find a way to make it work. Okay. Now, another person said, as an add-on, my therapist isn't leaving, but she's taking time or she's taking a month off. She's given me prior notice in relation to this. Why does part of me want to stop going altogether now, even though she's still offering sessions for like after? like another month, gotcha, so when she gets back. Part of me thinks, what's the point of going now as I'm going to have to take a month off anyway and maybe I don't need it anymore? I mean, a couple of things. First of all, if we're feeling impulsive and we're like, well, I just don't want to see her anymore anyway, I think we've been triggered. That's like a defense mechanism. It's kind of that all or nothing. I'm in therapy or I'm out of therapy. There's no like breaks. I can't take a month off. It, it's triggered us in some way. Could have triggered neglect and abandonment fears. Could have you know, fed into the like, I'm not worthy of getting help. I can't take up space. It's not okay for me to take her time. It could have fed into that too. There are a lot of reasons that we can be reactive like that. And that to me, that's what sounds like is going on. So be curious about that. Where is this coming from? Why is this so triggering? Why is this so upsetting? Do I feel like I'm not a priority or her taking a break? You know, what is that? What am I internalizing from this? Like, what's the story I'm telling myself about this break? Be curious, okay? So there's that component. But then the second is that if our therapist takes a break, like let's say our therapist goes on maternity leave, she's gone for like 12 weeks or, or longer, and we are fine. Maybe we don't need therapy right now. Maybe we take a break and call when we need it. 
if things start to get more difficult, then we, you know, make an appointment. There's, you can always do that. Like I've told you guys over and over again, I've had tons of patients over the years who will see me consistently, let's say for like a year. Then they're like, you know what? I'm doing great. Or I tell them, I'm like, you know what? I think you're doing great. I don't think you need to see me anymore. And they take a break. And that's it. Then they come back. Maybe a year later, maybe six months, maybe three years later. And they're like, hey, can I get back in? Yep, we book an appointment. It's okay to do that when we're doing well. I just don't know if that's where it's coming from for you, but I want you to know that that is also an option. To me, my like spidey senses think this is like you've been triggered. So let's dig into that and be curious about it, okay? Another add-on. I think this is the last one. It says, my therapist will also have to terminate my therapy soon due to lack of capacity. She works in an IP setting. Um, IP is usually inpatient, so that stands for after five and a half years. Wow. I'm scared because I've had many therapists in the past 11 years and several, several of them have done more harm than good. I take a long time to build trust and open up, and I've only just started feeling able to talk about the really hard stuff. I fear that it'll take forever to build a new therapeutic relationship, and while I know I need therapy, it's so hard to start with a new one. I get that. Currently, I'm only able to see her twice a month, which I think is less than what I need. I end up sending one email between most sessions and often count down the days to the next one because there's just so much going on. Do you have any advice? Ugh. I mean, you can ask your therapist, you know, if she's able to keep you, be honest about where you're at and what you need and how it feels like it's not enough. But at the end of the day, if the capacity issue is just an issue and she's having to let go of a lot of her patients, then we might not have a choice. And so my advice would be to ask her for a referral and start seeing them as soon as possible. And the reason I say that is because what I want you to have is her still on board while you meet with this new therapist and you can check with her about what this new therapist is doing to ensure that it's helpful and not harmful. And that will hopefully assist or maybe move along the trust a little more quickly than maybe it was in the past. Because you've had shitty therapists in the past, I don't want you to feel like you have to rush into trusting. That's not what I'm saying. But it can help to have someone we do trust tell us that what they're doing is good and okay. And oh, I see their process. And having her talk to them can also speed things along for you. Now, obviously, it's still going to take us time. Transitions fucking suck. It takes a while to get into the groove with a new therapist. Trust me, I've done it a few times in my life and I've never liked it. Also takes me a while to find someone I like and that's hard part too, right? So be patient with yourself. Take your time. But that that's really my advice is that to uh, you know, make sure you let her know what's going on. You, you ask her for a referral because she can probably pick someone. We usually know people who work in our space who are similar to us, and she can probably pick someone like that for you. And she can ensure that we get you in the possibly the best fit, you know, as best as she can try to recommend. And we can kind of do that tra transition so that we're not without her and then trying to find someone. And that can feel a little bit scary, especially when we feel like we need more therapy than we're getting. And yeah, that's what I would do. Also, that would fill in. If you're seeing her twice a month, I'd like you to put that other therapist in in those other two weeks each month in between. And that could assist and help you kind of like slowly titrate or transition over. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, could complex PTSD from emotional abuse and neglect result in an absolute fear and inversion of sexual intimacy? The few times I've been in a relationship, I felt so excruciatingly uncomfortable when guys I was dating would try to hold my hand or hug me. I would always freeze and shake. 
I also have a fear around men in general because I assume that they're going to take advantage of me to suit themselves. Could such an extreme reaction be the result of emotional abuse and neglect only? So far as I can remember, I don't have any physical or sexual abuse history. Hmm. I'm suspicious of the physical or sexual abuse history. However, I don't want to downplay emotional abuse and neglect. Now, emotional abuse, if it was from a man in our life who shouted and was angry and hurtful, right? Of course, we're not going to want to be around men and having them want to get close to us, which can make us feel vulnerable, is going to be super triggering. Also, so I can see that playing a role in that way. Also think of neglect. Now, if no one in our life has shown us love and support or hugged us, held our hand when we were little, told us it's going to be okay. If nobody did that, then when someone does, we're like, get out of town. This is really uncomfortable. I don't know how to deal with this. And we can want to jump inside our own skin. So I want you to know that that could be where this is coming from too. Now the freeze and shake to me means you were triggered. That's what that is like a, a little flag, like an indicator of. And so the fact that that's happening means that men in your life or guys you've been around have been hurtful to you in one way or another. Now, like I said, I'm suspicious of the physical and or sexual abuse, but that doesn't, I could see it coming from emotional abuse or neglect as well. So be curious about where that came from. Continue to work on it in therapy. This might be inner child work. This might be, you know, trauma processing, whether that's talk therapy, EMDR, um, schema, somatic experiencing, any of those things. Um, that could help you better manage it, navigate it so you can process it through so it's not affecting you in your life today. It's going to take time and I wish it didn't. I'm so sorry. But unfortunately, this like knee-jerk innate reaction is going to continue until we figure out the root and until we can heal that. And once we do, then we can move on and have happy, healthy relationships. And if you can find a man that you want to be with who is understanding and is, you know, giving you the time and space you need to get where you need to get to process it through. Stay with that person and that can help you slowly like do some exposure therapy to touch and sexual intimacy little by little as we feel okay, right? We're going to have to use resources to calm our nervous system down. Might mean we'd have to kind of shake it out. We might have to, you know, envision it in our brain first, like using imagery and then do it, you know, we'll have to work our way through. But Yes, it could cause that same reaction, well, even if there was no physical or sexual abuse. Now, there was a comment on this that said, what about emotional neglect and never having a romantic partner? I've only been on one date in my life. How can I move on from feeling like I am unworthy? Oh, that shame associated with abuse. Yuck. It's so hard, huh? I'm scared to do online dating. So at the age of 40, I don't know how to find someone. I grew up in the church and I think I really took the I kissed dating goodbye too seriously. Okay, <clears throat> so again, that trauma work. Because that emotional neglect has left you feeling like you aren't worthy, you're not good enough, all those shame thoughts, I'm terrible, I'm uh, no one's gonna love me, no one's gonna like me, all of those messages that we've heard through abuse and shame have gotten in the way of us being able to engage in relationships in a healthy way. It's, ca it's caused us to isolate and keep ourselves closed off. And so through acknowledging those beliefs and stories we tell ourselves about like who we are and 
and how valuable or worthy we are in relationships. We need to acknowledge those conversations we're having, the things we're telling ourselves. And then we have to argue back or create new ones using bridge statements. Remember, those are things like I'm open to the belief that I could maybe change the way I think about myself. Okay. And then maybe another bridge statement is like, you know, it is possible that I'm not as terrible as I think I am, maybe. Katie seems to think so. I don't know. I'm not so sure, right? Those are all bridge statements. They're not negative. They're not positive. They're just kind of in the middle somewhere. And so I'd encourage you to pay attention to what you're telling yourself about you and how you are in relationships and challenge those things with those bridge statements. That way, we can slowly untangle this, I'm so unworthy. I have to keep myself shut off and cut off from people. And then we'll be able to slowly engage safely and slowly at a pace that feels good for us in romantic relationships, you know, as we encounter them. Okay. Now, there's another comment that also, when this happens, how do you explain this freezing and shaking to your spouse or partner? I do have a history of sexual abuse, but it's never easy to explain, especially in the extreme state of distress. It's like a vicious cycle of feeling damaged and inadequate because of those reactions and flashbacks that fill me with shame and helplessness and that don't allow me to move forward. Best thing, bring them into the therapy session. I hope you're in therapy. But if you're not or you don't feel comfortable bringing them in, I think the best case scenario is to explain it when it's not happening. I know we don't want to talk about it. I know it's uncomfortable, but it's way better not to mention actually possible when we're not in that freeze or distressed state. And the way that I would explain it is something to the effect of, you know, I was hurt in the past. You can tell them it was sexual abuse or not. It's up to you and your comfortability. But I would just say, you know, I was harmed in the past. And so having people get close to me and touch me as much as I love you or as much as I care for you, it it can be triggering sometimes and it can send me into like a fight, flight, freeze response. And you'd be like, that's kind of why Sometimes I like space out or my eyes get large and I shake and be like, I'm working on it. I want you to know it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's more about me and my past and me trying to work through it. You know, I think that's the best way to explain it is to be honest, own up to it's it's you, it's not them, you know. And then the best thing you can try to think of, the homework really, is to figure out how they can help you move through it. What do you need from them? People want to know how to help. We can tell them, yeah, this is where it comes from. This is why I do this. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. I guarantee their next question is going to be like, okay, well, what do I do then in that situation? Like if you're frozen and shaking, what do you want them to do? You could say, you know, just give me a minute, um, step out of the room. Um, maybe if, if touch is okay, most people it's not, but some people want to have like their back rubbed or someone, some people want to have a blanket put on them. What is it? You know, um, let them know so they know how to help. Or maybe it means we go slower in the beginning checking in, making foreplay like a longer process for you. See where it's at, you know, but we have to tell them, we have to communicate. And then I've talked about this in the past, but in the Courage to Heal workbook, they have this beautiful like chart kind of thing where you put in the chart, you know, um, intimate touching, even hugs and handshakes and things like that. So any kind of physical touch that's okay, that maybe is okay that we might try and stuff that's definitely off the table for right now that's not okay. And share that with them. Take some of your own time to put that list together and then share it with them. And maybe things will move around as things get better. Okay. Another comment says, yes, I feel this deeply. 
How do I go about working on this? I also have no history of sexual abuse, at least that I can recall. But my first ever relationship in high school was extremely emotionally abusive. He faked a heart condition and that he was dying. What? <clears throat> Who does that? I think this has led me down the path that I'm currently on. I'm working on this terrible relationship and memory with a counselor via EMDR currently, by the way. So I'm feeling a little hopeful. I'm hopeful for you as well. I haven't had a stable relationship since that one. Once it gets to the point that there may be any kind of intimacy, cuddling, holding hands, kissing, etc., I break it off with the guy. Unless I'm under the influence of alcohol in which sexual engagement is no longer anxiety-provoking. I love physical touch and deeply desire intimacy with a partner, but it's such a mental game happening right now. It's to the point that I don't even want to try dating because it's a constant cycle of going on dates, then freezing and shutting down when things aren't progressing and then ending it all. When things are progressing, sorry. What can I do to move past this? Be open with the person I'm going on dates with on the first date, but that also seems like it's pouring my heart out to someone that I don't really know. I agree. Oh, he says, you rock, Katie. Thank you for the time and effort you've put into your channel and this podcast to make it, it make it what it is. Your wealth of knowledge is vast, and I appreciate your willingness to share it with us. Of course, of course. So happy to help. Okay, now, when it comes to dating, my encouragement is to do the work in therapy. I'm so glad you're doing the EMDR and you're talking about it and you're processing it because that's really where we have to start, especially because this happens so early on for you. This is like as soon as the guy wants to like make out, you're like, peace out, bitches. I'm not interested, right? And so we want to get you to a place where you can start engaging and able, you're able to manage some of that early stuff without just like cutting and running. It could be helpful for you to... Um, look for if this does this is just something that's helped some of my patients over the years look for the ways that the men you date so let's say you've gone on a date how are they different from this uh dickwad in high school tell me about it how what's different and we want to find people that are very different because that person sounds possibly you know like they have antisocial personality disorder or a narcissist or something totally i mean to lie about having a heart condition maybe they have munchausen syndrome i don't know but either way we want to find people who are different, and it's important for us to highlight that because for some reason in our brain, remember, our nervous system is wired to seek out threat in our environment, and when it thinks there's a threat, it hones in on it and tries to prepare us to take action against it. Am I running? Am I fighting? Am I freezing? Right? And yours is to run, flight. Yeah, you're like, I'm out of here. But because we had that really horrific and painful experience in high school, we see all men that we could date as being that same way and our brain is like no 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 no, no. we don't trust this and it runs away so we have to acknowledge the differences we have to find ways to calm our system down we have to recognize or kind of through exposure prove to our brain and our body that they're not the threat that this guy was but again we want them to be different and i check in with your therapist about some of the you know things that you've learned about them and things that they've said and how they're acting because we want to make sure that we don't end up with a similar situation, right? That's the goal is to prove to ourselves that it's not as scary as that one was. And in my experience, most men are not going to lie to you about a fake and a heart condition, but we just want to be sure. We want to take our time so that we set ourselves up for success. But you'll get there and I'm hopeful about the EMDR as well. Okay, let's move on to question number four. It says, hey, Katie, I noticed myself quote unquote, speaking in code in therapy. I'm currently in trauma therapy dealing with childhood sexual abuse and sexual um, assault. And I think I tend to do this 
so that I don't have to say certain words out loud. I don't want my therapist to say those words either. It's very common. Sometimes she understands what I mean, and other times I have to get creative in how I communicate. Is this normal, and is it okay to do this? Is the goal to get me to say certain words out loud in order for me to heal? It's part of it. We'll talk about this. I know this is probably something I should ask my therapist about, and I will at some point, but I really want to hear your perspective. Yes, please talk to your therapist about this. However, let's dig in. Okay. At the beginning, when we first start trauma work, we start talking about difficult subjects and topics. I'm okay with my patients not being able to say the words, and it's incredibly common. There's something about saying a word out loud that forces us to acknowledge what happened and forces us to admit that what happened was painful, hurtful, traumatizing, whatever it may be. It can feel impossible. We can feel frozen with it. And to say that word when our whole life, maybe we've been minimizing and validating that experience, it's going to be difficult, okay? So at the beginning, I'm okay with my patients using pseudonyms or you know, talking around an issue. However, as we move through it, using those words is going to be key to your healing. Now, like I said, it doesn't have to happen right away. That's why I bring it up with your therapist, let them know this is a struggle. But slowly but surely, we're going to try to work you over to a place where you can use those words. Now, I will play along and use the same kind of language. Like, let's say we don't use the R word, um, if it, like uh, rape. We don't say that in session. Instead, I'll say something like, um, I don't know, we could say when that person hurt you, right? And we can identify, we can say that specific person. Um, that could be how we verbalize it. Or when that person took advantage of you, right? We can use those kinds of, that kind of language. So anyways, uh, I'll do that at the beginning, but then I'm going to start using the words, but I always let my patients know that I am. I'm like, just so you know, I'm going to move into using the actual therapeutic language around what took place and what happened to you. It's always uncomfortable. I don't think I've ever had a patient, you know, when I'm ready to start using those words, that they're ready to start using the words. But the reason that it's important is it's validating and it's not minimizing what happened. The pseudonyms and the downplaying and the speaking in code kind of feed into that trauma response and that need to kind of like stuff it down or pretend it wasn't that bad. And so by using those words, it's going to be really healing, although at the beginning, really uncomfortable, but it's part of that process. It's almost like part of the the actual trauma processing is using those words. Does that make sense? Um, so at the beginning, it's fine. Um, but then as we move things forward, I would push you to use the real words and I would use the real words um, because it will help in the end. I hope that makes sense. But yes, bring it up with your therapist because you need to be on the same page. It, the conversations need to be had where you're saying, I don't like this language, so I need to use these words. And the therapist saying, okay, I'll do that for a little while. But challenging you to use the real words like assault, abuse, trauma, you know, whatever it might be. Okay, now someone commented that I'm finding that certain words in therapy really bug me or even derail me. I too really hate when she calls my babysitters the abusers or when she says rape. But some words make no sense as to why I get so mad. For example, one word I hate is brave. Hmm. I hate being called brave so very much. I feel silly about it because I know it's just semantics and I don't want to be picky. Should I tell my therapist about this or ignore it? Please tell your therapist about it because I would want to dig into why brave is triggering. 
Um, sometimes it could be because our abusers called us that. Or it could be because we are so de- self-deprecating because of shame, blame, guilt, and embarrassment that comes along with trauma that we're like, I can't take a compliment. Absolutely not, right? We can really struggle to accept any kind of thing that is positive. And so we might have to use bridge statements, bridge compliments, things like, you know, you really weathered that store. I know it's not as nice as brave in my mind, but it might feel more authentic to you. We have to meet you where you're at. So please bring it up. I have a feeling that it's in some way either minimizing, invalidating, or it was a word that was used by our abuser. And so we'll have to kind of tease that out, figure that out, and find some language that, again, we can use as we move toward using the words that, you know, are triggering now. It's a process. We're not just going to jump to it, but please let your therapist know so that they don't use those terms if they're upsetting. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, I've been seeing my current therapist for a little over a year now, and things are going great. I feel like she gets me a lot more than my previous therapist. Yay, I love to hear it. The problem is that I constantly feel like I'm lying to her, even when I'm not. If she asks me about how I'm feeling or my anxiety symptoms or even just what I did the day before, no matter what I say, I feel like it's a lie. And I'm making her think that I'm doing worse than I am. Interesting. But then when she asks if I did my homework and I say yes, I feel like I'm lying about that too. Even if I actually did it. And it makes me feel really guilty when she says she's proud of the progress I've made because I feel like I'm misleading her somehow. And she's giving me more credit than I deserve. Sometimes I freeze up when she asks me questions because I know what I want to answer. But I feel like it isn't true. And I shouldn't say. And then I don't know what to do. I would never intentionally tell her something that I know isn't true, but could I subconsciously be a lie or gaslighting myself into believing that my lies are true or something? I don't really understand why I do this, and I beat myself up for lying after our sessions. I really like my therapist, but I'm terrified that she's been wasting her time this past year because I've just been faking everything. Why am I feeling like this, and what can I do? Thank you. Of course, um... I'm curious. So as I read this question, I was like, this is really interesting. And my brain automatically goes to who has told you that you're lying? When you were a kid, were you told that like, they're not going to believe you if you tell them the truth? You're always such a liar. Were were your abusers like that, that they gaslight you into thinking that it wasn't bad when it really, really was? So that's where my brain went. And I'm just curious about that because it sounds like what we're acting out of, we, we use this term a lot in therapy, like you're acting out of an old narrative. And what this means is the way that we're acting today actually has nothing to do with what's going on. Like you're not lying to your therapist that you don't want to, you actually appreciate her. You think it's a great relationship. Doesn't make any sense, right? Okay. So if what we're doing doesn't make any sense, then where does it come from? Usually comes from our past. So for example, let's say we grew up in a house where it wasn't okay to show any quote unquote negative emotion spoilers. All emotions are fine. But let's say anything that wasn't happiness was like, how dare you? So in therapy, whenever we try to express our unhappiness, we feel bad about it. We might dissociate. We might um, struggle to put words to it. We might automatically want to self-injure, right? There could be all these things that come up because in the past, that's what we did instead of express it. So for you telling the truth to think that you're lying, I feel like it's coming from an old narrative, an old story, an old experience, like past you was probably told they're just a liar, even though you weren't, you were, I don't think you're gaslighting yourself. I think someone 
gaslit you. I think you were abused emotionally, possibly physically or sexually. But um, yeah, I think that's really where this is coming from. Also, I mean, think of it like when she says she's proud of the progress you've made, you have a tough time with that. You're like, that can't be true. I must be misleading you. It's possible no one ever told you they were proud of you. No one ever acknowledged the hard work. So I really want you to dig into where this is coming from. Why? Like, who else has told you that you're faking it, lying, misleading them? Have you ever heard that? Or maybe if you haven't heard it verbally, whoever, like, demonstrated that to you. You know, it could have been a parent. It could have been a teacher. It could have been a coach. It could have been anybody. I think that that's where it's coming from. That's really my hypothesis, that it's coming from past abuse, past narratives that we're still acting out of, even though they're not true today. So be patient with yourself um, and figure out where it's coming from for you. And then the cool thing is, is once we know, talk with your therapist about it, obviously, but that's when we can start to heal from it, meaning we can challenge those stories. We can rewrite them. I've had patients try to, you know, rewrite what would be a healthy way. Or we can do like what we call the miracle question where you're like, what if you woke up tomorrow and you no longer acted out of those old stories? What would that look like? Tell me about it. We'd tell people what was happening and we would know it was true because we were telling, you know, like, what would that be like? So there's a lot of different tools and tricks and techniques that we can use to help untangle those old narratives, but we have to figure out what they are first so that then we can work on them. Um, but yeah, let your therapist know and it will get better. Okay. Now let's move on to question number six. Okay, let's move on to question number six. And this question says, hey, Katie, can you talk about dependent personality disorder? I've never heard of this until my doctor, a mental health and eating disorder specialist, diagnosed me with this. I believe I have a video about this. So if you go on YouTube and put in dependent personality disorder, Katie Morton, it should come up. Um, so from what she told me, it sounds exactly like me. I've only been diagnosed or I've also been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And I was wondering how these overlap or if dependent personality disorder is just part of BPD. Have you heard of this before? Is it common? Since it's not in the DSM, does it really count as a diagnosis? Now, I know there is a brand new DSM that came out, but in my DSM, it's in there. And I'm just going to read you. It's a DSM-5. Okay, so I know, is it a text revision that came out? I forget you guys. But anyway, the dependent personality disorder has essentially eight features and one criteria, okay? Now, the one criteria is an excessive and pervasive need to be taken care of, submissive, clingy, and needy behavior due to fear of abandonment. And this can be expressed by, now here's the eight different features, difficulty making routine decisions without input, reassurance, and advice from others, requires others to assume responsibilities which they should be attending to, right? So we're reliant, dependent, on someone else, dependent personality disorder. Three, fear of disagreeing with others and risking disapproval. Four, difficulty starting projects without support from others. Five, excessive need to obtain nurturance and support from others, even allowing others to impose themselves rather than risk rejection or disapproval. Number six, feels vulnerable and helpless when alone. Number seven, seeks desperately seeks another relationship when one ends, so we don't like to be alone. And number eight, unrealistic preoccupation with being left alone and unable to care for themselves. Now, the truth about uh, 
dependent personality disorder. And it might not be in the, the like I said, it might not be in the brand new DSM or the ICD-11, but that's what it that's what it was and that's how it was defined in the DSM-5. Now, when it comes to to this, there is some overlap with BPD, but the overlap is very minimal. It would be the component of fear of abandonment and kind of the pieces that come along with that. However, the difference between a person with, we'll call it DP, well, it's just going to be hard, but DPD and BPD, so dependent or borderline, that's what we'll call them. So someone with dependent PD um, always needs someone else to make decisions and to do things and care for them and all of that. Someone with borderline or BPD, um, that's not really what it's about. Their goal is to keep people around because if they're gone, they're afraid they can't manage the pain, right? Someone with borderline is like an emotional burn victim. Everything is incredibly painful and hurtful. Someone who is dependent feels the need to have other people there because they can't do it on their own. It's a little bit different. And I know it can be hard because it's kind of nuanced, but you don't hear anywhere in dependent personality disorder where it says that they struggle with who they are, their sense of self or self-injury or, you know, um, kind of feeling emotionally volatile. There's nothing about this any in this component. Now, in BPD or borderline, those are all very key parts of that diagnosis. And so the, this really overlaps only in a small amount, meaning that we really don't want people to leave. So that number eight, the unrealistic preoccupation with being left alone, but again, unable to care for themselves. That's not the component of BPD. My borderline patients, it's not that they don't think they can take care of themselves, it's that they don't think they can manage the upset that would come along with someone leaving. Does that make sense? So it's just different. But I could see why you would think that it, it, it it's the same. Your therapist is correct, or your doctor, I guess. Um, it was correct in giving you that diagnosis and it being separate. We can have some BPD traits or have full-blown uh, borderline personality disorder and have dependent personality disorder. We just have to make sure that we're not mistaking some of the symptoms for the other. Okay? Does that make sense? I hope that that helps. Um, as far as how common it is, um, it, it says that it's more common in females than males. Now, this is from 2013. So, that's where the last statistics that I pulled up from the American Psychiatric Association, um, but they share that it's more frequent in females rather than males, and it's found in 0.49% of the population, overall population. So just think of it that like schizophrenia is in 1%, it's about half of that. So it's still relatively common. Um, I also don't love stats when it comes to mental illnesses because unless we see somebody and get help, we're not getting properly diagnosed. And then that diagnosis, I don't, I don't even know how they get those stats, right? Like, who's registering this? Like, I can't, maybe like only insurances. So, what if people don't use their insurance, right? You can see the difficulty with statistics when it comes to this. So, I would just argue that it is a common mental illness, and I'm glad you're getting help for it. Okay. And yes, I've heard about it before. Now, there was a comment that said to add on Can you talk about how families of someone with dependent personality disorder can help and cope? My sister has this disorder and my mom is her full-time primary, or it says PCA, I'm going to say primary caregiver, but a primary care, I don't know what that word is. I don't know what A stands for, but I'd assume her carer. It's a very blurry codependent deal. Some of my sister's needs are 100% physically needed. Some are definitely not. 
My mom does all her cleaning, cooking, laundry. She books her appointments and takes her to them, and she plans her meals and helps her in the shower. It's hard to watch, and it's really hard to weed out what are really needed supports and what are enabling behavior. It leads to a lot of relational issues and empathy burnout for my older sister and I as we watch my parents trying so hard to take care of her, and it's never enough. Um, my best advice on in situations like this for anybody who has full-time care in their family, someone in their family who requires full-time care is a dependent adult or still a child, right? Family therapy. I cannot tell you how important this is going to be because there needs to be a place where we talk about these things where we have a healthy, helpful mediator, a therapist, who's able to help tease it out. And then the whole work for your mom and your sister, the one who needs the care, is to acknowledge the things that aren't part of the actual physical needs and are part of the DPD and kind of enabling that behavior and the the difficulty is going to be for, or the homework really, but it's difficult homework, for your mom to not do it and for your sister to manage her emotional reaction. So she's going to need some maybe emotion regulation skills or some other ways to cope um, and to soothe. And so that really would be done in, in family therapy. And I would, I hope your th mom is in therapy because people who are full-time carers need the most support. Um, but yeah, and your sister too, especially having a chronic illness or needing to have support around the clock, it's hard. And so I really think that, that that's going to be the best thing is therapy as a group, as individuals, so that you all feel like you have a safe place to talk about this. Because I find when we have someone who's ailing in our family, this could be from a chronic illness, physical, some disability that they're struggling with, or even alcoholism or addiction, the whole family tries to function around it. And if we don't feel safe to talk about that issue, the resentments and the, the passive aggressive behavior grows and it becomes like, they talk about the elephant in the room that like we start walking around it and barely squeezing around in our own home. And it, it's kind of like that, but it, I like to think of it more that it's it's kind of this unspoken rule that we don't talk about it, yet we're all affected by it. And anything that affects us, we're going to have to be able to talk about it. And I don't mean in a blaming, shaming way, but I mean in an honest way where you're like, this is really hard to watch, mom. I really worry about you and your mental health. And then to your sister, you're like, I know it's really painful for you and I recognize that, but it's just hard to be around. And I feel like you're taking advantage of mom, right? We should be able to talk about those things. Yes, I know they're difficult. Yes, I know people can get upset. But the fear of someone getting upset should never prevent us from having a real conversation. We need to be able to talk about these things so that those resentments and those passive-aggressive behaviors and anger explosions or even our own, you know, leading to our own addiction, our own mental health issues, that those things don't happen. And the only way to prevent that is to have more open and direct communication. So therapy, 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 I cannot recommend it enough, especially since your sister is in need of, of so much care. I'm sure there are ways for you to get that, you know, covered through the programs that are available to her. So I would look into that ASAP. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, I've been following you for a while now, and I found you very helpful. Yeah, I'm so glad. So before I want to, I wanted to start and tell you I'm not English, so I'm sorry for possible grammar mistakes. It's already impeccable. You're doing great. Says, I want to ask you if it's quote unquote normal for a therapist to have as clients both a mom and her daughter. Ooh, let's talk about this. 
I'm seeing my therapist and so now does my mom. Now I've been in therapy since May of 2022 and I was starting to trust her, which is not very easy for me. But now I feel kind of sad and betrayed because neither my mom nor my therapist told me. I discovered it through messages that were sent. Now I know I shouldn't have read them, but if I hadn't, I would never have found out. In these messages, they also talked about me. And I think they talked, they talked about me during their sessions. I've been feeling constant anxiety and sadness for three years. I never felt validated. And for this reason, I always wanted to give a name to my emotions, but also through a diagnosis. My therapist only talks about my symptoms with my mom, not with me. So maybe she has already found a diagnosis and she doesn't want to let me know. Maybe it's because I'm 16. It could be. We'll talk about that too. I don't know what my therapist thinks of me or my clinical case. That was a safe space and now it's really weird. The situation has been going on for a few months and I don't know what to do. Okay, let's unpack this. First part, the only way, the only reason that it's ever okay for a therapist to see you and your mother in separate individual sessions is if you live in a really small community and there essentially are no other therapists available. But one random silver lining to COVID, almost everybody does virtual sessions now. So the chances of that even happening are pretty slim to none. And I would argue there's no excuse to see two of the same family. Now, the reason that we don't do that is what is known. I mean, it's it's a conflict of interest, first of all, because how can we ensure that we remain unbiased for both and don't accidentally share information between both? We're not perfect. We're human too. Why would we set ourselves up like that, right? Also, because of what you're talking about, patients want to know that there's like anonymity and that they're safe, that that's an okay place. We don't want people in our lives knowing that we go to this therapist or having the ability to even ask that therapist. It's all messed up and it's too convoluted. Um, it's not okay. So that's not acceptable. And I would bring it up with your therapist that it bothers you and you don't like it. Um, the only options that we're going to have is that you either you see another therapist or your therapist says they're going to terminate with your mom, which I don't think I mean, it depends on what they say, but you have the right to say, I don't like this and I either need you to stop seeing my mom or I need referrals for another therapist. And I'm sorry and it sucks, but I don't, that safe place has been ruined for you and they shouldn't have done it. Um, you could probably file a claim. I'm, you said you're not English. So I don't know what the laws are where you live or if you're in the States, you could file a claim against this because it's it's unethical what she did and potentially illegal if she shared any of your information. I know you're 16, you're not 18, but there you still have the comp, you hold your own confidentiality. Now, I want to say, is it 13 or 14? I always mess those. I think it's 13, but they have to tell you what they're going to tell your parents. Therapists can't just share everything with the parent. I know people think that they can, and some therapists probably do this, but ethically, it's questionable. And it's not something that you that they should be doing. And so if you feel like she's been sharing private information with your parent without your knowledge, you could file a claim against her license. I'm not saying you have to, but I'm just letting you know of your rights because I think it's important that we do know those so that we can make, you know, educated decisions about our treatment. Okay, so there's that. It's not okay. And that's why, because it's, it's confusing, complicated, and it causes an ethical dilemma. And we're supposed to avoid those as much as possible for obvious reasons. Okay, now, the other component about not having a diagnosis or not knowing what it is, ask her about it. You have every right to ask. I know some of us get scared to speak up, but it's your diagnosis. It's your treatment. You get to ask about it. What do you think I have? 
I feel like I have really bad anxiety. Do you think it's an anxiety disorder? Or my depressive thoughts get really deep. Do you think this is a major depressive disorder? They have to tell you. They should tell you. And they can't. I mean, I think it's unethical, although it's not. I don't think it's like written in any kind of bylaw or anything. I think it's unethical to give someone a diagnosis without their knowledge or without them weighing in on it. I don't like that. Um, so I would ask about that. Also, especially since it's important for you, I would let them know. I never felt validated. I, I never, you know, I'm super sad forever and I just never really felt like anybody took it seriously. So I would like to know if there is a diagnosis, a name that I can put to it. I think that would be really helpful. You know, talk to them. And when we are younger, being 16, 13, you know, whatever, sometimes therapists won't tell us a diagnosis or even give us a diagnosis just so it's not in our files for later. Meaning that they don't want, like, let's say, we want to join the armed forces or we want to become a, you know, police officer, FBI agent, work for some kind of company, and that's in our files. People will say, oh, we don't discriminate. They can, and they do. And so therapists sometimes will protect us by not putting that down if they don't have to. But they could still talk to you about it. And if that is the case, then they should tell you about it. You should talk about it. So I would bring it up and find out that um, so that she could at least let you know what she's thinking and tell her that you liked, you know, you want to talk about the symptoms. You want to have names for your emotions. It's really helpful and validating for you. It's okay to advocate and speak up. I know it's hard, but without that, then it's not, we're not getting the benefit out of therapy that we wanted. And I want you to get all the benefits. Okay. I hope that that helps. Final question, question number eight. So I have a question about how you would handle a situation as a therapist. Well, then I have an answer. If a spouse of one of your clients emailed you and told you about abuse that was to the point of getting a restraining order, would you read that email to your patient? There's a good chance reading it would pose a threat to the spouse just knowing how abusers operate. But I know there are ethical implications with your patient. How do you handle something like this when safety is in question, but so are ethics? Thanks so much. Now, When it comes to, it depends on what's happening, but when it comes to managing things, we have to go through legal, ethical stuff first, and then we kind of move down the chain. Now, to be truthful, like if I'm being completely honest, if I saw an email come through from a spouse of a patient, I wouldn't even open it or read it. And then I would talk to my patient and say, hey, I saw your spouse's name come up in my email. I didn't read it, but I want you to know that they've emailed me and I will not read or engage with any conversation with them because I would have told my patient ahead of time through informed consent that, you know, I'd, I'm not going to talk to anybody but them because I can't even say that I see that patient, right? That's confidentiality. That's a legal issue. I can't break confidence. But let's say I, someone told me this was abuse or I, I read, I was aware in some way, then I have to take action where I can. Now, I wouldn't read it to my patient, mm -mm. Um, but if there was abuse that needed to be reported, I would report it. And the email would serve as the evidence for it, and I would fill out the form as best to my knowledge, and I would turn it over to Child Protective Services or elderly Elder Protective Services or Dependent Adult, you know, whatever um, kind of abuse was happening. So that's really how I would manage it. Um, it's really inappropriate for anyone other than my patient to try to get a hold of me. I've had parents call me when their children are over 18. I've had uh, spouses call, uh, I haven't had emails, but probably just timing of things. And yeah, you know, everybody would call and leave voicemails. 
and I never reply. I pretend as if I never got it because I'm not going to be in the middle. Uh, you can't give me information via phone calls or whatever. Um, if, like I said, if I saw it pop up, I would, I would tell my patient, hey, so-and-so called me. You need to talk to them. But I'm not going to be the go-between. I'm not going to tell them anything that was said it, that, you know, but when it comes to abuse situations, if I think abuse is, abuse is actively happening, I would have to protect whoever is being harmed and I would have to call it in. And that's just the truth about being a therapist. And it's, it's a tricky line, right? But again, the the spouse is not my client. So, and even if they were, right, that's when I you actually break confidence or and you share information when someone else could be being harmed by you staying quiet. Does that make sense? That's what, what it means to be, um, why Why am I blanking on the name? A mandated reporter. I'm mandated by law to report any child, elder, or dependent adult abuse that I become aware of. And so that that's how I would manage it. I know it's tricky and I know it sucks. Um, but yeah, that would probably be if the spouse is saying that they're my client is the one that's abusing them, unfortunately, there's no, unless there's children in the home, I there's no, you don't report like spousal abuse. I don't, it's just not, I don't know. It's not the way our system works. So to that end, it would, it would be a, I couldn't do anything about it. Um, it's tricky being a therapist sometimes because there are a lot of things that you have to report and there's a lot of things you cannot. And so that would be, you know, the spouse shouldn't be emailing me. They should be getting their own therapist or getting out of there or whatever to protect themselves. I hope that makes sense. It, the ethical, the law and ethics of being a therapist are sometimes tricky for people to understand. But once I have informed consent from a patient, that person's my patient, they hold their confidence unless they sign it over saying, I can talk to so-and-so about this. Um, and the only reasons I can break that confidentiality is, you know, if I fear for their safety, the safety of someone else, or there's abuse happening to, like I said, child, uh, elder, or dependent adult. Okay. Thank you so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for sharing this podcast. It's been incredibly helpful. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you then. Bye.
Okay. You just flip it. Oh, it's recording. We can lower. Fold this bar outside. Give me a second. Should the door again make fold the doors in eight size? So, happens. Who the heck? Okay, is that rolling? Okay, yes. Yeah, 55, 50. Smart. And the camera's lit up. It's got the red on. Yep. No. Her harness is right there, though. You gonna go for a walk? A shot? You gonna go outside? Yeah. She's coming. Okay. 